right. Today I'm here with Sabrina Spencer, Assistant Professor of Biochemistry at CU Boulder, discussing her recent study involving mother cells and their influence on cell division. Uh, Sabrina, thank you for calling in today. My pleasure. Excited to be here. All right. So what initially inspired you to study cell division at large and also cell division for the study? Well, cell division is fundamental to life. Uh, it's how we go from a single fertilized cell to becoming you know, a baby and then an adult. And that is you know, many, many cell divisions have to happen for us to you know, garner all the cells that are in an adult. And that, I think, is really exciting in and of itself from a developmental standpoint, but also from the standpoint of cancer biology, because one of the main things that goes awry in cancer is the unregulated proliferation of cells. So if we understand how cells cycle and proliferate from a basic science point of view, it has immediate implications for understanding and treating cancer as well. So that's in general why I have found cell proliferation to be, be so fascinating. Specifically for this study, we were interested in how cells integrate competing signals. So we know if there's growth factor signals that will promote the cells to, to proliferate. We also know if there's stress signals or negative signals that will hinder cell proliferation. I think the competition between these two and how cells weigh the balance of good and bad signals to affect the right outcome is really interesting. Um, but also the temporal dynamics of the signal. So are the cells just weighing how many bad inputs and how many good inputs do I have right now and then making a snapshot about uh, a snapshot decision about what to do next, you know, just in an instant? Or are they weighing their past history? Are they considering, oh, okay, yeah, maybe times are great right now, but I know 10 minutes ago times are really bad or 10 hours ago, times were really bad. And so even though times look good right now, it could just be a, a fluke or a little fluctuation. So for this study, we were interested in the history of mitogen signaling. If cells could even, how they sensed that and whether they could even remember their past history of mitogen signaling. And if so, on what time scale? Over what time scale were cells caring about the good times that they may have encountered? So that's what we were after in this study. And you found that um, it's mitogens that are um, influencing the cell division. That That is the main factor, correct? Right. So in this study, we were tamper, uh, tinkering with mitogen signaling. So we were either removing mitogens. So mitogens, you, you can also think of them as growth factors. That's uh, you know, a, a word people are maybe more familiar with. So like epidermal growth factor or nerve growth factor. These are that class of growth factors. In general, you call them mitogens. Mitogens are signals that produce or cause cells to undergo mitosis. So we were tampering either with the availability of mitogens, so we could change the media that the cells are growing into a media that has no mitogens for a couple of hours and put it back in media that has mitogens, or we can do a similar thing by just adding a drug that blocks the signaling downstream of mitogens. Uh, we use primarily a MEK inhibitor, uh, and we also use an ERK inhibitor. So those two uh, proteins are part of the signal relay that are downstream um, of the presence of mitogen. So we could either do it with drugs that are actually also used clinically in cancer treatment, or we could do it just by changing the media. 
Um, and when you uh, insert these kinds of inhibitors, um, so that prevents cell growth. Right. Your cell yeah, division. So, yep. So you add an inhibitor, say a MEK inhibitor, which we work most often with, uh, but it doesn't stop proliferation immediately. So you add a MEK inhibitor in the middle of a cell cycle, that cell will keep going and complete its cell cycle and divide into two daughters. And only then will the cell exit the cell cycle into a kind of a dormant state called quiescence. So it's not, you know, once a cell is committed to a cell cycle, it will complete that cell cycle. Um, so, oh. yeah, almost no matter, almost no matter what in terms of mitogens. And that pertains to this concept of, you know, cell cycle commitment. One cell's past this point in the cell cycle called the restriction point. If you take away the mitogens or block mitogen signaling, they're still going to go through and complete that cell cycle that they're already engaged in. And only after that mitosis will the cell even make a go or no-go decision. So you wouldn't see the effects of an inhibitor um, until the uh, next cell cycle. Exactly. Um, so when you were looking into this, what originally led you to your conclusion? What was the um, initial thing you saw that kind of caused you to pursue this um, course of research? Well, in my postdoctoral work, I had done some preliminary groundwork related to this topic where I was comparing the – I had developed a new tool – um, a, a live cell sensor for this key enzyme called cyclin-dependent kinase 2. And this enzyme's uh, activity reports on whether a cell is committed to the cell cycle or not. So once this activity starts building up, and we can measure this in a single cell with my live cell microscopy, that, after that point, the cell is committed for that cell cycle. And when this activity turns off, we know the cell is in quiescence. So I had worked already to develop this sensor in my postdoc at Stanford. And what we saw there was that, contrary to the textbook model, that cells were integrating the presence or absence of growth factors in G1 phase of the cell cycle, that's the first initial phase of the cell cycle, we were seeing that cells were already making a go-no-go -no -go decision as soon as they were born. And if they were already committed to one path or the other as soon as they were born, that meant that the decision must be in the previous cell cycle. But we didn't know where in the previous cell cycle, and we didn't know if there was a small window where they were sensing or whether, which was sort of the default hypothesis, that there was a window at the end of the previous cell cycle where cells were integrating the availability of, availability of growth factors during that window and then deciding what to do after mitosis. So... But we, that was sort of was the default hypothesis, but we hadn't tested it explicitly. And so um, when my postdoc, Mingwei Min, came, she wanted to tackle this project to test whether it really is this end of the previous, we call it the mother cell cycle, window model, or whether there was uh, some other window where maybe cells were always caring about growth factors and were integrating over a much longer time scale. So what we were able to do was control the experiment much better to separate um, the timing of the mitogen addition, because um, previously we had just added the, for example, the drugs and left the drugs in continuously. And in this set of experiments, we decided to add the drugs and then wash it out after one hour or wash it out after three hours or wash it out after six hours. And then we could tile those little windows 
anywhere in the cell cycle and see when cells were caring and when cells weren't caring about the presence of growth factor signaling. And what you found was that um, the cells from spinogen throughout the entire metal mother cell cycle, while meanwhile the textbook model showed that they um, only detected them during the early daughter cell cycle, correct? Right, that's right. So you kind of disproved that um, textbook model. Yeah, I mean, that our paper goes against the textbook model. Of course, it would be great to have other labs come to the similar conclusion before a textbook can be overturned. Generally, it takes more than one study to overturn these sort of things. But yeah, we, we think the textbook model isn't holding up, and it's not a fault of the textbook model. It's more of an issue with um, older technologies versus newer technologies. The textbook model is based on experiments that were first done in 1974, and to assess whether cells were continuing or not continuing with the cell cycle, what people had to do was first synchronize cells. That means take away all their growth factors to lock them in this quiescent state so they all pile up in this quiescent state and then release them into media with growth factors and then take away growth factors again. And what we found is that the act of synchronizing them, of taking away their growth factors, actually kind of resets any memory they had. And so when you do the experiment with a reset kind of in place, when you do the initial experiment and you're waking the cells up from this quiescent state, of course, what you find is that they're initially sensitive to the mitogens they're being given that wakes them up. And so that's why the original model was that cells were sensing mitogens in G1. However, so the way you... we can... Oh, go ahead, please. No, no, go ahead. What we can do with our new technology is, uh, uh, well, uh, this, we did not develop this technology, but what we are particularly adept at is long-term time-lapse imaging of thousands of single cells. So we can film cells over multiple days under a microscope, taking a picture of the cells every 12 minutes in multiple different fluorescent colors, so we can track multiple things in the same cell over time, and then we film the cells and we can take the plate off the microscope to, to add a drug and put the plate back on the microscope and keep filming and then take the plate back off and remove the drug and put the plate back on. And we can re-register the images and re-register the cells. So we know we're following the same cells over time and we apply uh, a computational tool called a cell tracker to follow the individual cells as they move around and divide into daughters and granddaughters. Etc. And with this technology, we don't have to synchronize the cells at all. We can synchronize them, you could say, in silico, meaning we can just synchronize them computationally. I can say, oh, I want to see all the cell traces that divided between 13.5 and 14 hours into the movie and just pull out those traces and see what happens to them when you add the drug, for example. Question. You said that... Um you took a photo every 12 minutes. Um, why every 12 minutes? Is there a certain reason for that timing? Um. There is. So it's a fine balance between two things. So the faster you image the cells, the more frequently you image the cells, the easier it is to track them because then from one picture to the next, they haven't moved very far. If you take a picture every minute, the cells are from one frame to the next. They've hardly moved at all. And it's easy to say, oh, this cell in this frame is this one and this frame and this one and this frame and this one and this frame because they're just moving a tiny bit. But on the downside, 
the more pictures you take, the more phototoxicity you cause the cells. So anytime you take shine these fluorescent lights on the cells, especially uh, wavelengths closer to the UV, you're inducing DNA damage in the cells, and that can affect the fraction of cells that's going to be able to proliferate. So we, for this particular cell line, which moves pretty quickly, 12 minutes is pretty optimal. It's a balance between taking pictures frequently enough that we can always know which cell is which from one thing to the next, but without causing too much phototoxicity or DNA damage. Because that UV light um, affecting cells, is that in the same way that it kind of affects humans in terms of things like sunburn? Exactly. Yeah, so UV causes DNA damage. Uh, for example, thymine dimers to your DNA, which can block replication and transcription on the DNA and has to be repaired or the cell will, will die. So it's the same light, UV-induced light damage. So for this experiment, how many runs did you do of groups of cells? Did you have more than one of groups? Uh, one group of cells that you tested, um, and how long did you typically do a group for? Did you have a standard set of time, or did you um, vary it with each uh, group? Right. So we do these, uh, these experiments in high throughput in that we do it all in a 96-well plate. So this is a, a common plate size in biology experiments, and it consists of 12 columns and eight rows. And so each well, you put cells in each well, and each well is a somewhat independent replicate. And that way you can get, for example, in you might say in column one, you might leave the cells unperturbed. So then you have eight wells of unperturbed cells. And in column two, you might have cells. And in these cells, you're going to add the MAC inhibitor for one hour and then wash it away after one hour. And then in column three, you might add the MAC inhibitor for three hours. In column four, you might add it for six hours. In column five, you might add it for nine hours. And in column six, you might just leave it in the whole experiment. So that way you can test all these different treatments in one big batch experiment. And we did this many, multiple times. We had to figure out you know, what windows were meaningful to test. We had to get the imaging conditions right. We needed to know, you need to image the cells prior to the treatment for enough time that you know what cell cycle phase they're in and for enough time after the treatment to be able to follow their response. And we did this in multiple different cell lines. Uh, that We tested the two that are in the paper are a mammary epithelial line called NCF10A and a retinal pigment epithelial line called RPE. And both of these are non-transformed meaning non-cancer cell lines. And so those are the two that uh, were in the study. So I, we, we did this experiment multiple times and in different ways with different inhibitors and different cell lines. I'm not even sure how many, but it is, I think the whole study was about 10 terabytes of data. Wow. And that's without the, all the repeats. That's just the, the experiments that actually went into the paper. We have stored in a special system where we uh, keep all the data that's been published. What's it like coming through all that data? Um, that's, that's quite a large amount. So um, how do you go through it all? Do you, you mentioned you use computer imaging to track um, cell movement, so you can track the uh, cells that have divided and those lineages. But what kind of human element is involved in analyzing that data? 
Um, what's the human effort in analyzing that data like? Well, if you did it all by hand, I don't think you would ever complete the work because you would go crazy following, you know, several hundred different cells over some 200 frames. Uh, so what we usually do is for each movie, we might load one actual movie of, say, the eight into um, a, a pipeline like so there's a free one from the NIH called Image J. So you can load all the frames of the movie, and we can just watch the movie and make sure everything looks good. The cells are well-spaced. The sensors are being expressed. There's no fuzz or weird microscope glitches and you know that we can make sure the drugs are working. And so we kind of have a quick look at one representative movie of all the different conditions, and then we just push the whole, through, whole thing through our image processing pipeline, and that is run in MATLAB. So there what you might need to do is set the parameters for cell migration speed and cell nuclear size and a few other things, and then we just run it on, you can run it on an individual computer, on a cluster, and then the output is what we call a trace data file. And in there you get, um, for each cell, you get it various signals over time. So depending on the centers you put in there, you can measure CDK2 activity in a cell over time. You get the time the cell each cell divides. You get uh, the mother-daughter relationship. So we can build the lineage tree, like a family tree for all of these cells. And you get the XY position of each cell. You get its nuclear area. We get a whole bunch of parameters. And then we can, for example, plot process the data to plot whatever you want. Often in this paper, what we did was to plot the fraction of cells that immediately committed to another cell cycle by elevating their CDK2 activity as a function of when the drugs were added in the previous mother cell cycle. Um, so a question, you mentioned earlier that there is a lot of cell memory involved. How does that cell memory function? Right, so that was, the big question, once we saw that, for example, a three-hour lapse in mitogen signaling early in the mother cell cycle, or even a one-hour lapse, could be remembered for the next 12 to 15 hours all the way into the daughter cell cycle to influence daughter cell proliferation, the fact that this perturbation, which was brief, and um, where the cells were replenished with the mitogens for many hours before making the decision, the fact that we could see an impact on the daughter cell proliferation meant that there was some sort of memory. They were storing the information about the past somehow, somewhere. And then the second phase of the, so once we had that phenomenon, the second phase of the project, which was the harder phase, was to figure out how they were doing that. How are they writing this information? And what we eventually figured out was that, after some red herring, uh, was that when you block the MAP kinase pathway, protein synthesis is reduced very quickly. And when you put the MAP kinase pathway back, it is increased again, but the impact of that absence of protein synthesis is carried all the way through, for example, to G2 phase of the mother cell cycle. And so we think the absence of protein synthesis is what is stored throughout that whole time. We required the, the memory storage system first to be able to sense the absence of MAP kinase signaling, 
and also to store it. So basically to remember the reduction for many hours. So protein synthesis is quickly reduced upon myokinase signaling, um, and the impact of that reduced protein synthesis carries on. So we think that's one component. And the what we we're not able to prove because the technology isn't there yet is that this absence of protein synthesis may actually be changing the mass of the cell or the cell size. Because if you're not synthesizing proteins for, say, three hours during a MEK inhibitor treatment, then that cell isn't growing during those three hours. And then even if you put the, the um, pathway back to its on state, the cell has lost three hours of growth. And so during that time, it is, you know, that cell is now smaller, and when it comes up for mitosis at the regular time, it's entering mitosis at a bit smaller size. And we think that could be something that is being sensed, although that is very hard to prove with live cell microscopy because it's very hard to weigh cells with, uh, with microscopy, and we just don't have the precision or the, the, the precision, let's say, to really tell differences in cell weight. So the readout we could see is the differences in a protein synthesis rate, and that is a fairly well-known proxy for changes in cell size or cell mass. The other thing that happens is because protein synthesis is reduced, there's a key protein called cyclin D that normally builds up in G2 phase of the mother cell cycle and ramps up to the point that it is helping to trigger proliferation in the daughter cell. So cyclin D binds to an enzyme called CDK4-6, which promotes cell cycle entry in daughter cells. And if you don't have cyclin D, you won't have CDK4-6 activity, and you can't enter the cell cycle. Now, what we saw is when you add the MEK inhibitor, say even in early cell cycle in the mother cell, even just for one hour, we can see a reduced increase so less of an increase in cyclin D in the end of the mother cell cycle. And so now not only might that cell be smaller potentially, we did not show that directly, the cell also definitely has less cyclin D and less of the enzyme complex needed to kick off the next cell cycle. So with, this, with everything you found, um, you mentioned earlier that this could be big for cancer treatments. What would the impact um, of your study, what do you hope the impact of the study will be? Well, we, uh, so this is purely a basic science study. We were not trying to say anything about cancer treatment. We only used uh, non-cancerous cells. Uh, but of course, it's been shown time and again that increased understanding of cell proliferation in the cell cycle can have impact on understanding cancer treatment multiple years later. So if I were to speculate, I think it's important to have an accurate model of the cell cycle and what input the cell is considering when it's deciding whether to divide or not and when the cell is considering these inputs. Because you can only impact the cell's decision to proliferate or not if you hit the cell during a window where it is considering whether to divide or not. And potentially, luckily potentially for cancer treatment, what we see is that the cell is actually sensitive 
to absences in MAP kinase signaling or growth factor signaling throughout the whole mother cell cycle. So that means you could, that there's the majority of time, these drugs that target this pathway could be having an impact on cancer cells, whereas people might have previously thought that you have to only hit the cell with these drugs in G1 phase of the daughter cell, according to the textbook model, to have an impact on whether the cell is going to proliferate in the next cell cycle or not. So that's one potential uh, area of impact for cancer treatment is understanding the timing when cells might be sensitive to these drug treatments. All right. Um, so for our listeners, where would they be able to find your study Where, would, if they want to read it themselves? Uh, it's in science, correct? Yep, it's in science. Uh, science has a paywall. Uh, so you have to, if you're on the CU campus, you will have access to science, so you subscribe to science. Or if you're off campus, you can VPN into the campus and uh, access the journal that way. Any university or almost any university would subscribe to science and people would be able to access it there. If you're not part of a, a university, then you can still get the abstract on the Science Magazine webpage or through the NIH um, pu publication system, which is called PubMed. Uh, so you could read the abstract there. And uh, if people are particularly interested, they can email me and I can provide additional information. Um, so thank you for coming to talk to us today. Um, that is the end of my question. So if you were to leave our listeners with one ending note, what would it be? Um, is there anything you'd want them to walk away with uh, knowing, or is there anything else you would just like to say to our listeners um, right now? Well, I think what is interesting here is the snapshot versus history. Um, this has been coming up recently in, uh, for example, the coronavirus situation we're all in, where the coronavirus test tells you a snapshot of whether you're sick right now, but it doesn't tell you anything about the history of whether people have or have not been sick in the, in the past. So the test is a snapshot yes, no right now, um, whereas what is also very informative is whether people have ever seen the coronavirus in the past. And you can kind of think of that as an analogy for this study. The cells are not just caring about whether they have growth factors right now or not. They're actually caring about whether how much growth factor they've seen and have they ever seen a sufficient amount of growth factors in the past to promote proliferation. So that is kind of one maybe current analogy you could think about in terms of uh, historical signal integration versus just snapshot in the moment test. Um, this might be a bit of a long shot, but do you feel like this um, the, this study could come to maybe play somewhat of a role um, when dealing with diseases such as COVID-19? Probably not. Um, this is, you know, more of a cancer cell biology type of study, and what we really need for fighting coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, is, you know, infectious disease, experts, virologists, immunologists, and that sort of thing. Of course, the cells that this virus is infecting are, you know, 
cells like normal cells like the ones we use in the study. Um, but, you know, we're studying cell proliferation and not particularly uh, looking at the immune, any sort of immune response. So, unfortunately, probably not. All right. All right, Professor Spencer, thank you for coming in to talk to us today. My pleasure. It's been great to talk to you. All right. Thank you. Bye.